Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she has heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said, to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they, they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hands of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was still because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified, testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Lord God, speak to our hearts from your word this morning. Help us to know more and more that your love does indeed endure, and that your ways are good. And change our hearts by your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please take a seat and uh, turn back to page 222, all the twos of the church Bibles, and to Ruth chapter 1, as we look together at this chapter under the heading Calamity. I wonder, are you in need of spiritual refreshment and encouragement this summer. I know I am. Then the book of Ruth is for you. You see, it shows how God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, even in the darkest of times. So it's for people who wonder where God is when, when one tragedy after another attacks their faith. It's for folks who wonder whether a life of integrity in tough times is actually worth it. And it's for those who can't imagine that anything great could ever come of their ordinary lives of faith. And one thing that strikes me about this book is that it is so ordinary. Dealing with everyday events such as economic hardships, death, love, marriage, birth. We can all relate to it. The people are so ordinary too, just like me and you. Ruth has no strange visions of God. She never sees a, quote, miracle. And neither do the people around her. And yet it's in and through the ordinary day-to-day and the most unassuming of people that God is mightily at work moving secretly and silently to bring about his great plan of salvation of the world as we'll see as we go through this book. And the same is true today. We're not to make the mistake of thinking that God is only to be found in the impressive and the spectacular. He's also to be found in the ordinary and in the seemingly trivial. 
He's not just concerned with spiritual superheroes, but those who appear to be the most ordinary, simply seeking to love and serve him the best they can, like Ruth. So let's look at what is a very heart-rending chapter by learning from the three key human figures. So first, Elimelech, a man of crisis. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn or stay in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. And they were Ephrathrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, it was the worst of times. The time of Judges. The period after Moses and Joshua, when Israel had entered the promised land, but failed to show that loving obedience to God and his laws they promised. So there followed an endless cycle of rebellion. God disciplining his people, often by allowing them to be attacked by their enemies, which then led to the people repenting, asking God to help them, which he invariably did by sending a rescuer or a judge, like Samson, for example. There then follow a period of peace, but the whole sorry cycle began again, spiraling further and further down towards moral chaos. Rather like what's happening today, even in parts of the wider church, where Jesus' teaching on identity and relationships is being thrown back in his face. In Ruth's day, you had thugs roaming the streets, gross immorality, idolatry, murder, human sacrifice. Today, Evil is being called good. Go back a a page to Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It's the last verse of Judges. And it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what's happening today, and that's what's happening here with this family. This is Israel in microcosm, a people on the run from God. There's famine caused by war, but also part of God's disciplining judgment of his people. So Elimelech's family leave Bethlehem, a town which means house of bread, but which is now a house of famine. And off they go to Moab. Now we need to see the enormity of what's happening here. For the original readers, it would have been extremely shocking. You see, to leave the land of promise, which God had given his people, was equivalent to leaving the faith. It was turning your back on God himself. And if that weren't bad enough, going to a place like Moab made it even worse. Moabites were the sworn enemies of God's people. They were folks steeped 
in idolatry. In fact, God had expressly forbidden his people to have any dealings with them at all. That's back in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So what this family was doing was the cultural equivalent of walking away from church today and saying, well, from now on I'm going to throw in my lot with the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a false group. Why? Well, on the surface, it was just convenient. There's famine. The reasoning went so, verse 1, let's go to where we can eat. After all, it'll only be temporary. But there are clues indicating there was more to it than just that. You see, why are we given details of all the names here? Because, of course, they're significant. For example, the name Elimelech means my God is king, which is ironic. Because as one of God's people in God's land, he was meant to trust God, come rain or shine. Instead, what does he do? He decides to clear off like the prodigal son he was. In spite of his name, he was no better than anyone else in Israel. For he too just did what was right in his own eyes. His name claimed, God is my king. His actions revealed, I'm my own king. Perhaps someone here this morning is doing that, or is in danger of doing that, of going the same way as Elimelech. Also, he was an Ephrathrite. That is, he belonged to an established and wealthy family. Naomi implies this in verse 21 when she says, I went away full, but came back empty. So material comfort, rather than spiritual faithfulness, was at the top of this family's agenda. The names of his sons are significant too. They're prophetic names pointing to what happens when we deliberately turn our backs on God. We become Marlon, which means sickly, and Killian, which means failing. And they're Canaanite names, so religious compromise might have actually been there from the very start. And the result? Disaster. Calamity. Look at verses 3 to 5. All the men died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you not feel the pitiful tragedy of all this? What started off as temporary turned out to be ten long years. What was meant to be a means of escaping death produced death on a devastating scale. And in the original, verse 5 doesn't even mention Naomi by name. It reads, the woman was bereft of her two sons and husband. In a section in which names are linked to personal identity and significance, even that had been lost for Naomi. And you know, elimicalism, I can't really say that properly, elimicalism is alive and well in the church today. It's there in wanting all the benefits of having the name Christian but without any of the cost. 
We see it when career, money, and property become above knowing and serving God and his people. It's there in that pursuing of short-term material gain at the expense of long-term spiritual benefit. So meeting with God and his people takes a back seat to everything else. To have the name Elimelech, or my God is king, or today Christian, is one thing. To act out that name in practice is something else. And if we feel there's a distance between us and God, there's only one person who's moved, and it isn't God. Is that you? If it is, turn back to him. One woman who was humble enough to see this was Naomi, a woman of mourning, which is my second heading. And the bottom had completely fallen out of Naomi's world. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren, and so she had no visible means of support. Helpless and hopeless in a foreign land. And Naomi's name is also significant. It means pleasant. Perhaps reflecting her natural character. But by the time she returns home to Bethlehem, she's a very changed character. Look at verses 19 and 20. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. When she left ten years ago, she was proud, head held high, rich. Now the cares etched into the lines of her face would have told their own story. This was a woman in the depths of despair. She was empty, emotionally, spiritually, materially, a woman at the end of her tether. Her life was far from pleasant. It was bitter. And she was bitter too. Not necessarily a bitterness totally directed towards God, but rather towards herself and her family because of their foolishness and their sin. And the tragedy they brought upon themselves. But she did at least recognize what should have been realized before. That God was having to be hard or tough in order to be kind. Look at verse 13. It's more bitter for me because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. But it was the one whose hand had gone out against her, that she now reaches out to, to grasp hold of. Because, look at verse 6, she'd heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. And that's the kind of God he is. He sees his people in need, and he comes to their aid. And that name too is important. The Lord, which appears seven times In this chapter, it's Yahweh in the original. In other words, I will be whatever I need to be for the sake 
of my people, as we see from Exodus chapter 6. Like the name of a caring husband, it's a name which speaks of a love which will not let go. A love which has his people's long-term interests at heart. The tough love of a mother for her children who will sometimes insist on the hard medicine when the voice of reason fails. And he's also, we see here, the Lord Almighty, which is repeated twice in verses 20 and 21, who was showing Naomi that she'd been going the wrong way. You see, the Almighty is a term which tells us what he's like, namely, he's the God who's at his best when we are at our worst. The one whose hand was against her may yet actually lift her. The God who is judge is also the God who is savior. So this is the God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, to whom she decides to return. The prodigal daughter decides to come home. How many times does the word return appear here in this chapter? Well, actually 12 times to save you counting up. Starting in verse 6, Naomi and her daughter-in-law decided to return home. And what's the significance of the word return? Well, it's the word the prophets used to call Israel to return to God, to repent or convert. This isn't just a physical homecoming for Naomi. It's a spiritual homecoming. And maybe that's what God's calling some of us here this morning to do. Maybe all of us. For whatever reason you've been keeping God at a distance in some area of your life. Like this family. And you've been on the run. Like this family. Well somehow God feels cold and remote to you. But he hasn't moved. As I said earlier, you have. If so, then there's one you must return to first. And that's the Lord himself. He hasn't abandoned you. Any more than he'd abandoned Naomi. In fact, he was to have things in store for her she couldn't even begin to dream of. As he has in store for you. In his son, Jesus Christ. If only you'd believe it. However, this kindness of God is not cheap. Yes, it's amazingly free and unearned. Nevertheless, as Jesus said, we have to come to terms with the demands following him makes on our lives. And Naomi now realizes this. And because her daughters-in-law say they want to go with her, Naomi is also anxious that they do too. Look at verses 11 to 13. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, 
Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The situation seems nothing short of hopeless. Why on earth would Naomi's daughters-in-law want to be hanging around with someone like her? Now it might have seemed sensible for these young women to stay in Moab. Then at least they'd have the security of a family around them and a prospect of a future husband. Whereas going to Israel is very risky. Perhaps permanent widowhood, given the Jewish attitude towards the Moabites. Maybe a loss of contact with their own family altogether. And why commit yourself to a God whose way seems harsh at times? Who appears to be for you one minute and against you the next? This is a journey of faith. Naomi is talking about A journey, therefore, without many comfortable guarantees. And faith is often spelt R-I-S-K. Risk. But we can trust God. One of the women, Orpah, despite her initial enthusiasm, decides in the end to make her way back to familiar territory. You see that in verse 15. And you see, God never forces us to follow him. But he does invite us. The question is, how will we respond? You know, there are many who are like Orpah today. There's an affection towards God and the Lord Jesus as Orpah had towards Naomi. And no doubt her religion. There may even be the occasional church attendance. But in the end, the attractions of comfort in this life can appear to far outweigh the promises of the next life. And such faith, in quotes, soon evaporates, just like the morning mist. Orpah took the sensible option. But Ruth... What did Ruth do? She took the right option. Which option are you taking? Are you taking the sensible option, the seemingly sensible option like Orpah? Or the one of faith and commitment like Ruth? You see, Ruth was in fact a woman of substance which is my final heading. Just look at the strength of her commitment in verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Again, in a book where names mean a lot 
so does this name. Ruth means friend. And what a wonderful friend to Naomi she turned out to be. You see, Ruth was no fair-weather believer. She says what she means and means what she says. Her words are like the language of marriage. At heart, it isn't just an affectionate loyalty to Naomi. It's a pledge of deep, loving service to God and his people. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's a personal conversion that's going on here. Through the gentle witness of Naomi, Ruth has come to know the true and living God. Have you? Yes, his ways may be mysterious to us at times, but they're never fickle. He has a loving purpose behind everything he does. As Ruth was to discover, to her utter amazement. Even at this stage, Ruth can see, however dimly, that knowing this God and belonging to his people is worth giving up everything. Look at verse 22. As they returned, it was the beginning of a harvest. The barley harvest. It's a telling little phrase. Not only stating what was the case, but also acting as a kind of teaser trailer, suggesting something better to come after the famine. And we'll see how Ruth and Naomi enjoy a spiritual harvest, which was eventually to draw people in from the four corners of the earth into the orbit of God's saving love. And that's partly why we had that reading from Romans chapter 1, although there are a number of other references to Ruth in that little passage. And it's only that love which provides the strength and the certainty we need when we experience God's Strange work, as someone has put it. His disciplining love, when even he must be tough to be kind. Let's pray together. And let's just spend a moment by ourselves with God, responding to his word. Reflecting on what we can take away from what his word says to us this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us here in Ruth. How it speaks to us in uh, every aspect of our lives. In the ordinary, in the tough times. And we pray that we would learn to trust you. 
you who are the Lord Almighty, who is not only judge, but also Savior. So help us, Lord, to uh, turn to you and to trust you each day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.